This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your lone co-host this week, Ethan Frisch, and uh, my guests are people I've I've known for quite a while in this funny food startup space that we all seem to float around in and run into each other at trade shows and ask each other for advice and share contacts. Uh, <laughs> Carolyn Cotto and Claire Schlemme are the co-founders of Renewal Mill based in Oakland, California. Carolyn, Claire, thanks for joining me. Thanks, thanks so, much so much for, for having, having us. us. Uh, so let's let's kick it off with a little bit of an introduction. Uh, what is Renewal Mill, and how did the two of you come to start the company? Sure. Yeah. So um, so Renewal Mill is an upcycled food company. We are fighting climate change and global food loss by upcycling byproducts from food manufacturing into superfood ingredients and premium products, including baking mixes and cookies. Um, I got started in this space um, from my previous venture, which was a juice company. So this was back around probably about seven or eight years now. And that it, it was through that experience that I came face to face with food waste and realized that there's a lot of inefficiencies in food production. So as you can imagine, if you've ever juiced before, you know, we would end each day with just these mountains of um, fruit and vegetable pulp. And we really struggled with that because we knew there was something better that we could be doing with it. It was, you know, premium organic fruits and vegetables that we were buying. Um, so, you know, there was an economic component to it too. Uh, and then, of course, as we wasted all of this, um, as we wasted all of the the pulp, we were also wasting all of those resources that had gone into growing um, the the fruits and vegetables to begin with. So, um, you know, it was. It was definitely something that was weighing on my mind. And when I was looking for um, new opportunities in the sustainability, kind of that, the, in that, uh, the intersection between sustainability and food, um, that byproduct idea just kept kind of coming, coming to the surface. And I kept thinking about it. And I ended up meeting the owner of a tofu factory based in Oakland. And <clears throat> we immediately bonded <laughs> over this byproduct issue because he had, it, had one as well was very similar to uh, what I had seen with the juice. It's essentially the, the first step in making tofu is making soy milk. Um, and that's kind of like milking the soybeans to get that soy milk. And you have a lot of pulp that's left over and it's highly nutritious. There's a lot of really cool stuff with it, um, but there's no real place for it to go. And so it's treated as a waste product. Um, and what made it really exciting was that, you know, we, we struggled in the, in the juice business with our byproduct because we were pretty small, but here you have someone that's doing food production. So they're relatively, um, large volumes that they're producing. And so it was a really interesting, really an interesting opportunity. Um, what were some of those quantities, uh, early on? Like what, how yeah. much, <laughs> how much soybean pulp were, were you kind of tasked with finding a home for? It's it's a lot. So um, so from this facility, it's about uh, it's about like forty tons per week that's being produced. Um, 
and across the U.S., I mean, we estimate that these fiber, these same kind of fibrous byproducts, there's just billions and billions of pounds that are going to waste every year um, that don't have an easy place to kind of plug into the currently established food system. Why do you think that is? What uh, I mean, it's it sounds yeah. like you know with, when, especially with something like juicing or or soybeans, you're doing. I mean, even coffee, other other uh, similar products where you. 90 plus percent of the weight of the product gets thrown away. Why Why aren't there other systems to address that? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is the, the really the linear focus on, you know, how do I get as quickly as possible from my inputs to this one output that I want to be producing? Um, and there really aren't the incentives in place in our food system to think holistically about your inputs. Um, that is something that, you know, traditionally we would do, um, especially if you're, if you're uh, maybe a small producer, or I think a great example is to think about how you, how you treat things at home, right? Um, we look at uh, traditional usage of okara in East Asia, and there is a pretty rich culinary tradition with it because of the fact that most people would originally make their, you know, back in the day, you would make your soy milk at home um, because you were a lot closer to this concept of waste and, you know, you'd paid for the soybeans that you were using, um, you, you used the okara. You saw that as food alongside the soy milk. Um, and I think as we scaled up and our food system became more industrialized, um, it became more cost effective to just focus on what's the quickest, fastest, cheapest way for me to get my outputs and um, and that the the um, unintended consequence of that was essentially uh, ignoring anything else that's produced along the way, and so that's that's exactly where we think these opportunities exist now is to basically come in and plug in um, a solution that allows you to to make this food production more circular and bring these byproducts um, back in and being being kind of that bridge builder for these products so that. Um, so, so that we can be more holistic in how we think about the inputs. I think one of, a, one of the staggering statistics to us was realizing um, about, so about um, 60% of the soybeans that come into the facility um, don't end up, that, that mass, 60% of that mass doesn't end up in the tofu. So you're going from a situation, you know, before you're utilizing the okara, you have about 40% of the soybean mass that actually ends up as food for people. Um, but when you also are utilizing the byproduct and bringing it back into the food system as you know, okara flour, now you're utilizing 100% of the soybeans that were grown and made it to the, the door of the soybean factory, or sorry, of the tofu factory. Wow. And Carolyn, tell us a little bit about your story. How did you come to start Renewal Mill? Yeah. So I actually grew up in the food industry. Um, my parents own an ice cream store named after me and I grew up working there. Um, so I've what's, always really what's loved it to called? cook. Uh, it's called Sweet Caroline's. It's on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. That's awesome. And um, yeah, so just always really been passionate about food, about cooking, and then um, chose to focus sort of a lot of my studies around the nutrition side of food. So my early career was spent um, on both working on child obesity under the Obama administration um, as, and then with the UN World Food Program in Cambodia, working on rice fortification, um, but really seeing firsthand the effects that um, lack of access to affordable nutrition has on people's health. Um, so when I met Claire and uh, learned about all of this nutrition, leaving the food system through sort of just 
uh, overlooked in the in the manufacturing and supply chain. Um, it was a really clear fit that we could capture this nutrition and bring it back to people's plates um, and get that nutrition back to people who need it most. So let's talk a little bit about how how you're using our Okara or how Okara has traditionally been used. How you're suggesting. Uh, people who, you know, who aren't making their own soy milk and tofu on a regular basis might use this ingredient that you're, that you're providing to them. Yeah. So traditionally, okara, it's Japanese superfood. So it's actually a Japanese word where O is kind of an honorific and kara means husk or, um, so the whole word kind of means honoring the husk or honoring the whole bean. Um, and it has a ton of fiber in it. So it's traditionally been used as, um, like a side dish in Japanese cuisine. You can saute it with vegetables, um, but it's a really great way to, to boost the fiber content of your diet. Um, for us here in the U.S., it's we're definitely recommending that people use it as an alternative gluten-free flour. So it has very similar um, properties when cooking to something like a coconut flour, but with a lot more nutrition. So just a little bit of okara can easily get um, the fiber and protein content of the final product that you're using it in up to an excellent source of fiber for the day. What are tell me more about some of those traditional uses? How what would people have sautéed the the sort of husks of the soybeans or or ground them up into a flour in the way that you're doing? How how do they look different? Yeah, so um, in in Japan, tofu distribution is is or sorry sorry tofu production is still pretty distributed. So you would have like a local tofu maker in your you know village. Um, you could go to them and you would get this wet okara. So when they're making soy milk, they're boiling and blending the beans, they're siphoning off the liquid and then leaving this pulp left over in its wet form. So in Japan, it's traditionally been used in it, in its wet form and sold that way in the grocery store as well. Um, and a fun story is, I don't know if you're familiar with Miyoko's, um, but they're a vegan uh, cheese company. And Miyoko actually got her start making pound cakes with wet okara in Japan. So um, lots of applications, both sweet and savory, but definitely a uh, very beloved part of that cuisine. And and in the format that you're working with as a flour, what does it taste like and how does it work in, in baking kind of standard baked goods like chocolate chip cookies? Yeah, it's very neutral in flavor and color, which is a huge benefit of Okara. So um, it looks like traditional all-purpose white flour um, and it tastes very similar as well. Um, we're t recommending that people either blend it with other gluten-free flours um, or use it in place of something like a coconut flour. So it's it's really popular right now with a lot of grain-free bakers or keto-friendly bakers because it's gluten-free, grain-free, and really low in net carbs. So um, you can have all of those guilty pleasure foods, but without um, all of the, the carbs and any uh, calories that come with that. Yeah. I, I guess one of the challenges that I've seen a lot of other um, upcycling companies or companies dealing with with food waste kind of in the way that you are um, is the production uh, costs of turning that food waste into something edible can be uh, can be pretty high, can be prohibitive. Um, would you tell us a little more about your production process, what it means, how, how you take the wet okara from the, the soy milk and, and tofu making process and turn it into flour, what, what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So th that was one of our that was one of our considerations early on was that you know we wanted to make this as cost efficient of a process as possible. Um, partly just because that makes it a better business model, but but also because you know our goal was really to be addressing this uh, particular type of food waste at scale. And to do that, we know we re we really wanted to be able to price it as as you know mass market as possible, so that it could be used in as, in as many places as possible. 
Um, so it was something we were paying really close attention to. And what we what we realized was really important was to actually have a co-location model for our production. So we we work directly on site with the um, with the manufacturer manufacturers that are producing these byproducts. Um, we place our equipment at their facilities so that we can capture the byproduct and turn it into a shelf stable ingredient right there on the same factory floor um, where where the byproduct was produced. Uh, so that that really helps us keep our costs lower because we're not having to um, ship it anywhere else to like a centralized facility for it to be processed. Um, and it also actually gives us some additional benefits for food safety. So a lot of these byproducts um, are fairly wet, um, like the okara. So it's it's about um, 80 to 85% moisture coming out of that soy milk making process. And, and it's prone to, to, to spoilage. So it spoils pretty fast. So you really want to make sure that you um, draw that water content down and, and dehydrate it very quickly after it's been produced. And so being able to basically just move it directly from the um, <clears throat> from the soy milk line into the into the dehydration unit is um, really critical for for that food safety aspect. And and then what happens next? And then yeah, so <laughs> so after it's dried, um, we mill it into a flour. Um, we opted to call it okara flour because it gave a sense of how it could be used. Um, I think. In the West, we're more, you know, we're familiar with flour. It has a connotation of, you know, you, you can think about how it's going to be used. Um, it's, it's also called okara powder, um, and it can be used actually in kind of the ways that we think of powders being used, you know, a nutrition boost to a smoothie and things like that. Um, but we liked having the word flour there because, I mean, we are milling it to a particle size that's, that's on par with an all-purpose wheat flour. Um, but also it just allows you to kind of think about, okay, the applications where I would be using flour, I, I can think about how I would be using this upcycled ingredient in those as well. Um, so, uh, but we can, you know, we can change the milling size and, and kind of vary the different applications, whether you want something that's better for like a breading, um, or if you want something that's very, very fine that you might want to try to use in a beverage application, um, you know, we have some, uh, we can vary that, that part of the process. Um, and then from, from there, it, it can go to a customer who's looking to, um, you know, purchase this ingredient to use in one of their own products. Um, we, we use it, uh, you know, we also use it in our own branded product lineup. So um, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we have a line of baking mixes and a ready-to-eat uh, vegan cookie that, that use the, the um, upcycled ingredients. Um, and yeah, and so that's, that's kind of the overview of, of the production. Awesome. Uh, let's pause there, take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com.
And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. My guests this week are Claire and Carolyn, founders of Renewal Mill in California, making okara flour from uh, soybean pulp. Um, I know there there is a long history of upcycling uh, all kinds of ingredients all around the world, not just in Japan, which we talked about a little bit earlier, but, but it often has this sense that it's a brand new thing, that these are new ideas that nobody has ever done before. Um, how do you contextualize your work in the bigger picture of, of both the tradition specifically of Okara, but, but the bigger picture of uh, upcycling food waste ingredients that takes place, has always taken place all around the world through all of human culinary history? Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's very true. You know, it is, it is really a really exciting time um, for, for upcycle. There's a lot of um, momentum behind the word. I think people understand what that concept is. You know, people are beginning to understand what that concept refers to with food and, and how really it's um, a signal of a more sustainable food system. It's a signal of uh, being more efficient with our resources, which is, you know, incredibly helpful in helping to, to fight climate change. Um, so, so it feels new in the sense that we are, we're kind of naming it something and we're trying to move our food system to, to that place. But it, it is really true that, um, you know, the, being efficient with, with your inputs and the food, the ingredients and the food that you're using to, to make a meal or make food is definitely not something that's new. And we do, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about, the food that we eat every day or food that's very common that, that you wouldn't necessarily know, but has, has an upcycled history. Um, I think one of my, one of my favorite stories is about, um, uh, the Orida, um, uh, potato <laughs> factory when they got started, they, um, I, I guess they were doing frozen, frozen vegetables at first. And they, um, kind of, heard about this new craze for French fries, got the equipment in there to, to um, basically cut their potatoes to, to, to make these, these frozen French fries. And in the process, of course, you have, you know, waste of the potato that doesn't make the perfect, you know, fry. Um, and this was like back in the forties, the I think. And the, um, the brothers that had started this company were, had lived through the great depression. And, and even though there was kind of a use for it, I think they were maybe kind of like dumping it on fields nearby or something like that, potentially using it for, for like animal filler feed. Um, they, they just were really struck by the fact that they could do something more efficient with it. Um, so they, they kind of put their heads together, did some R and D work. And, um, in the 1950s at the uh, national potato convention, I think it was in Florida, uh, they debuted a brand new product, which they called the tater tot. And, um, and it's just such a, kind of beloved um, food in, in America. And the origins are very much from thinking about how can we take this potato and not have some of it slip out of our food system as, as um, waste and instead make sure that all of that potato makes it to people, whether it's in the form of a French fry or a tater tot. Um, so, so there's certainly, you know, there's, there's certainly a rich history to being efficient with, uh, with food production, which is great. And I think there's just so much opportunity to bring that efficiency, like get that efficiency back. Um, and, and now we're kind of doing it under, the, under this um, movement that feels new of, of eating upcycled. But, um, but it really has, has roots, you know, very, very deep roots. Um, 
And, and I think it also, you know, I think the, the, the concept of upcycled, um, just because we can tie it so closely to, to being more sustainable and doing something that's better for the planet, um, that is also something that feels very urgent right now as well. I mean, it, it doesn't feel, it is very urgent right now. Um, so there's, there's the right kind of momentum to, to um, catalyze our food system to become more efficient. What are some of yeah. the, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, yeah, I think, you know, for me, it comes down to the fact like grandma was upcycling, right? Like in the Great Depression, you know, using all of the food that you bought was super important. And so it's kind of hearkening back to that appreciation of food um, as well. And there's, you know, tater tots is one great example, but there are countless examples of things like hot dogs and whey protein powder and applesauce of of really creative things we've done with food that would be considered upcycling. And now we're just bringing it to the forefront again. Yeah. Um, are there other ingredients that, that you, that Renewal Mill is looking at working with beyond Okara? Absolutely. Yeah. So we are definitely trying to build out a full portfolio of upcycled ingredients. Um, we're starting with the byproducts of plant-based milk, just because we can kind of easily scale our process across them, given how similarly they're produced. So our second ingredient is an oat milk flour made from the pulp left over when you make oat milk. And again, dehydrating it and milling it into a high protein oat flour. Um, and then there's other plant-based milks we can look at like almond milk or pea milk and the starch left over from that processing. Um, but yeah, we're also really excited about talking about the potato again. Um, that's one of the largest waste streams in the U.S. is potato peels coming from the French fry process. And so uh, lots of interesting problems to tackle when it comes to to building out full ingredient set. Yeah, um, I, I would imagine that uh, marketing upcycled products is a challenge, both because people don't really want to hear that that the food that they're eating was somebody's waste, even if it was totally useful, edible, delicious waste. Um, how how have you approached that, and do you find that your customers are are coming to you because of the of the social mission that your company has, or because of um, flavor or nutrition or other reasons? I think we definitely see both. So um, ultimately, you know, consumers are still a little bit selfish. They want to know what the product is going to do for them. So nutrition and taste are both very, very important in what we think about as far as bringing on new ingredients. But the sustainability story is great for sort of opening the door, getting that conversation started um, and and really getting people to, to double click and understand what purchasing upcycled food means. Um, because of the, the challenge with marketing, you know, when we started this, we were really cautious not to put waste anywhere on the package. We didn't want people to think that they were eating food of any sort of lesser quality. Um, but in 2019, we got all of the companies in this space to band together to form the Upcycled Food Association. And we actually just approved the first ever certification standard so that we can have products certified upcycled the way that they're certified organic or certified non-GMO. And we're actually creating a unique seal that will be able to go on the front of these packages to indicate to the consumer that they're certified upcycle, which is really helpful in sort of building a cohesive centralized message around what it means to purchase upcycled food and what that what impact that has on the environment um, and really take the, the conversation away from this is waste to this is a climate change prevention method with um, tangible impacts. How do you how do you find that people are learning about that? Is it is it that they come to site to your site or, or come across companies like yours and learn about upcycled uh, food through through the companies that are making it, or 
or have you seen a bigger media campaign or, or more sort of general awareness uh, outside that that's sending people to you as a result? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there was a big study that came out by the NRDC about four years ago that said 40% of all food produced is wasted. And that statistic, I think, has slowly trickled down so that people are now aware that food waste is an issue. Um, also, companies like Imperfect Foods have done a really great job of helping educate consumers about all the waste happening at every part of the supply chain, from food left on fields to food being thrown away, thrown away in restaurants and, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, consumers now know that food waste is an issue, but now they want to know what they can do to help. And that's kind of where upcycled food comes in. Yeah. So we've been building this story over the last four years and um, really getting it out into the public. But I think this year is really exciting because people like Whole Foods have kind of grasped on and named upcycled food a top 10 trend, which is really, really helpful to bring that into the mainstream so that people are not only aware of food waste, but they know that this is a solution for that problem. Do you, either of you have any advice for uh, early stage food entrepreneurs who are thinking about getting into this area, into food waste or upcycled ingredients? Um, How would you recommend they approach it? Yeah. I mean, you know, my first advice is, is just to say, you know, do it. Um, it's a, it's a very exciting time to be, to be in this space. There's a lot of attention that's being turned to it. A lot of people are, are very, um, there's a lot of passionate people in, in the space. Um, and, and I think it's a great time too, cause there's a lot of support. Um, Caroline talked about the, the upcycled food association and how there's, there's a lot of, um, support with all the the folks working in this space to, to uplift the whole the, this whole new industry of food um, I, I think it's also you know so so I would encourage you also to to utilize the the network and utilize the folks that are out there um, as as support to to create uh, a business in this space and to to utilize byproducts in some way and Carolyn yeah I think you know it's just there's so much opportunity for someone who wants to be creative. I think some of the best chefs are the people that kind of think outside the box and, you know, you like kind of like chopped, right? You're using things that might not be in the mainstream, but you can create super unique products that are really intriguing to sort of millennial and Gen Z consumers. So if, if you have an idea, like Claire said, just hop in. And then um, if you definitely want to create an upcycled product, there are more and more companies that are offering different ingredients. And so it's getting easier and easier to source almost entirely upcycled ingredients for your, for your final product and then be able to market that, certify your product um, and get that out into the mainstream. Yeah, awesome. All right. So just do it. If you're thinking about it, just do it. Uh, let's do a little fun question segment uh, before we wrap up the interview. We're coming up on the end. Um, uh, Claire, why don't you get us started? If you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be? Um, I think I would be a green bean mm. because I like like um, like the the ones that climb. I think it's, it's <laughs> I like the idea of um, I like the idea of kind of being over the garden, looking looking you know, kind of swaying in the breeze, you're the f- looking over the garden. You're the first person who's ever answered that question with a description really? of the plant uh, that the <laughs> vegetable grows on. Everybody else is, you know, I'm an eggplant, I'm an onion, I'm a whatever. No, but, oh, that's so but funny. you're the only one yeah, who no, described I'm, the plant. I'm thinking, I'm like literally that green bean. Okay, yes. I love it. Carolyn, how about you? <laughs> I think I'd be a sweet potato. Um, you know, you can go sweet, you can go savory, not a little bit hard to pin down, <laughs> but always surprising. Very flexible. Sounds good. 
Um, what is the best meal that you ever had that cost less than five or ten dollars? Claire, you want to go first? Sure. This is this is actually an easy one for me. Um, vegan street tacos in Mexico City. Amazing. There's there's like multiple places to get them and just incredible. So many different flavors and interesting concepts in those tacos. What kinds of uh, what kinds of vegan ingredients? Oh, I can't even like remember them all, but you know, just basically any kind of vegetable that you can think of that was that was in there. Awesome, Carolyn. Uh, tacos is a good one, but I used to live in Taiwan. Um, in southern Taiwan, there was a man that sold only scallion pancakes out of his truck outside of the Costco, and this there would be always a line like you know, 40 people long for these massive scallion pancakes that just melt in your mouth. They're absolutely delicious. Sounds amazing. Um, how about childhood breakfasts? What were, Claire, what was your, your favorite breakfast as a kid? Or what did you eat on a, a sort of a regular breakfast on a school day morning or something? Oh, good, good question. I was gonna. I mean, my first, my first answer that I was thinking about is like, of course, my my dad's pancake breakfast, but that was a special Sunday morning only. Um, my more regular breakfast. I was a cereal kid. It was a lot of um, a lot of cereals. My mom had had two rules: it couldn't have artificial preservatives in it, and sugar could not be the first ingredient. But otherwise, we could uh, we could choose a cereal of our of our choice. It, it was somewhat limiting from the eyes of an eight year old child in the in the uh, sure. cereal aisle. <laughs> sugar <but laughs> not being the first ingredient, right? It's it's much easier to follow those rules now. But um, back when I was a child, it was like you know all of the all the good ones were uh, didn't didn't fit that, yeah. but um, but yes. <laughs> and Carolyn, how about you? Uh, my mom was also not a cereal person, but there was no rules. There was just no cereal, so definitely uh, we uh, we were more of an eggs breakfast, scrambled scrambled eggs. Did you ever get to have ice cream for breakfast, or was that off limits? <laughs> No, I feel like once you've seen so much ice cream, you like you definitely lose an appetite for it. So, <laughs> I if I, when given the choice, ice cream is not even in my top ten desserts. Yeah. Um, all right, last question: uh, Desert Island kitchen tool. What do you bring with you if you can only bring one thing to your desert island? Oh boy, one kitchen tool. Okay, I just. So hard. Okay, I, mean, I know this one. Okay, for go, me, go. my favorite kitchen tool is the. Food. I have a mini food processor, and I make everything in that, and from salad dressings to like chocolate mousse to hummus, you name it. It's it's in my mini food processor. Awesome. I think I'm gonna have to go with a garlic press because I put garlic in basically everything, and it's. I mean, I use I use that garlic press all the time. I'm not sure how useful it would be on a desert island. Yeah. I'm assuming that there's garlic there and some ways to enjoy it, but yeah, that's probably my most used uh, kitchen kitchen item. Yeah, I think you could have garlic on a desert island for sure. Okay. Why, why go to a desert <laughs> island without any garlic? Um, where can our listeners find you? Follow your work. Follow you on social media. Purchase your products. Yes, you can find us pretty much everywhere um, at Renewal Mill, and we are online at RenewalMill.com. Um, you can also find our products on Thrive Market, on Amazon. We will be launching soon on Fresh Direct, so um, there's some other places online that you can find us other than the, the website as well. Awesome. And then we're in brick-and-mortar stores, uh, mostly in California, but coming to your neighborhood soon. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, which is Blind. Thanks to Armin Spengen, our amazing sound engineer. Uh, as always, you can reach us by email, whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org or on social at whyfoodpodcast. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. 
And you can reach Valerie on Instagram at foodie in New York. Um, and most of all, Claire, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining me. This has been such a great conversation and, and great to catch up. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ethan. Really appreciate it. Talk to you all next week. Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.